Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams. And you know, one thing I love learning more and more about is gene editing and what people are doing in the ag and food science industry to help make food not only taste better, but also to be healthier for us. And so maybe you're wondering how gene editing works and also what companies are doing to create more products for us, to have more convenient produce and stuff like that. Well, today on the show, we are talking with a company called Pairwise. Um, Specifically, we are talking to their co-founder and current chief business officer, Dr. Haven Baker. So Dr. Baker has worked with Pairwise for a long time, and he's going to tell us how they're using new techniques called gene editing to create different varieties for things like leafy greens, berries, cherries. And he brings up a really good point, and that is that gene editing can do the same things as traditional plant breeding, just a lot quicker. Instead of having to breed plants over the course of maybe decades because of gene editing, we can do it over the course of a few months, which is awesome. So it was really cool to chat with Dr. Baker about Pairwise, about what they're doing. Um, there was a lot of really cool facts that he said. Something, One of them was like, um, today only 10% of Americans eat the recommended daily allowance of fruits and vegetables according to the CDC, which I mean, it's crazy. But I mean, honestly, it makes sense. And he was talking about how Um, Pairwise is trying to do something, they have this term called snackification, and that's all about convenience. Like um, consumers, pretty much everybody, we all go for the snack that is convenient, whether that's a cereal bar or maybe some grapes, whatever that might be. We go for the most convenient product out there. And companies like Pairwise are trying to make healthier produce that's going to be more and more convenient. Think about something like a a cotton candy um, grape, which we talk about that, how it's something cool, it's something, it's like a novelty, and you're going to eat it probably more than you would a normal grape, it's just something fun. 
So yeah, uh, this was a super fun conversation with Dr. Baker. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll learn a thing or two about gene editing and how we can eat more fruits and veggies and how we can include them into our diets and a whole bunch of other really good stuff. And also, you know, uh, GMOs, which is basically gene editing. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you don't mind, a quick little call to action. If you enjoy this episode, or maybe you've enjoyed another episode we've had here on the show, consider sharing it with a family member or a friend. Um, Organic growth helps us out a ton on the show, and it helps us reach a whole bunch of listeners and, you know, helps us connect farmers and consumers more. So, yeah, I would greatly appreciate it if you would share it. So, anyway, this is episode 114 with Dr. Haven Baker from Pearwise. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, hey, Dr. Haven Baker, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, good morning. Only my friends call me doctor, but thank you. You're right now. Welcome <laughs> to the friendship. Hey, well, sweet. Well, good to be here. So I'm excited to chat with you to learn more about Pearwise. Um, I'm always fascinated with like gene editing and stuff like that. So before we kind of dive in what Pearwise is, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got worked with Pearwise? Well, you know, like like a lot of these stories up there, let me turn off my other bike. Uh, like a lot of these stories, um, it's a very circuitous path. And when you uh, when you get sort of to the middle or the end of it, it seems to make sense. But while you're on the path, you're like, what am I doing? But so I, I grew up on a farm in uh, eastern Washington state. Um, my family, um, we raised, uh, you know, potatoes and onions and different seed crops, grass seed, pea seed, as well as corn and wheat and sweet corn and popcorn. And so I grew up in agriculture. Um, you know, all my extended family was in agriculture as well. Um, and but, you know, a heck was tough in the 80s. And I, all I remember was working and driving tractors without cabs. And so um, I was motivation to get education for me. So I, I got a reasonably significant science education. My first degree is in, in biomedical engineering, and I eventually got a PhD in chemistry. And I, I worked at startups in Silicon Valley, and I, and I had a, even had a hedge, show, hedge fund job in there. And, um, and I managed a research lab. And, and so to, I was in my early 30s, and I was finally done with all the schooling. And um, I thought, hey, you know, it might be fun to get back into agriculture. And so... I went to Simplot and I, um, I had a great experience there and eventually they, uh, put me in charge of their plant sciences effort. And, um, so that was really the mix of a sort of a bit, the, the business side as well and, and matching, you know, market targets to sort of these technologies. And, um, as, um, you know, after eight years of that, I, I, CRISPRs was coming around and I really enjoyed working at the Simplot company, but, I could see there was an opportunity to work on more than potatoes. And so I, I left and started a company, started a company, started Pairwise. And um, that's sort of, that was four years ago. Sort of, that's how I got to where I am. Well, there you go. That's awesome. So what were kind of the, the beginning struggles with starting Pairwise? Because I know a lot of people, when they hear gene editing, like a lot of people outside of ag kind of get scared off, but people in ag know what that's all about. So what, what were some struggles that you guys faced whenever you're trying to start Pairwise? Well, um, you know, you've got to, you're trying to do something that's meaningful, mm-hmm. um, both economically and for your customers, in this case, consumers. And then you've got to do it with these timelines um, that, that investors will fund. And so, you know, one of our ideas, our really original ideas was a, a pitless cherry. Also, a pitless cherry is available year round. And 
you know, we don't think that could be, we've been working on three years now, but that can't be done inside 10 years. And so that, that's probably not fundable uh, from a, a venture capital perspective or investor perspective. And so we need some product ideas that, you know, that we could bring to market in, in five years. And, um, and that led us to the berries. I think one of the things that I'd seen in the potato sector that get, had given me pause was that, you know, traditional, uh, when you go shop for potatoes, like I do, we, we buy these Irish potatoes that were, were often sized to be like baked potatoes. You know, they're, they're as big as a fist or two fists. Mm-hmm. And what had been happening is that the, 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 the new one biters or two biters had, had come on the market and they were coming in a multicolor, you know, not just the traditional russet potato, but the, the red ones and the yellow ones and even the purple ones. And they were small and consumers, we, we were buying them. My kids liked them better. You didn't have to peel them. And, um, you know, I could, we could see this sort of mini- the miniaturization. We tried to make produce big for a long time, and it, but now it gets smaller. It's a lot more convenient. So those are some of the, um, you know, some of the insights that, um, and that, so that really add on to that, those little high, those little potatoes are high growth. And so if we can think about enabling other high growth produce categories, you know, that was kind of sort of the recipe that came together to start Pairways. I think the, after the funding came in, we had to hire a lot of people fast. And so making sure that we had um, everything set up and um, we had a place for people to sit, we had a good lab, um, you know, you have to get your facilities going. So anyway, there's a, there's a whole bunch of infrastructure that has to be in place to be successful too. So I don't know where you want to take it, but that, that, that's sort of one answer to your question. Oh, yeah, no, that's a great answer. And I'm always fascinated by how like the whole funding process goes, especially for agro companies like you guys. I mean, because I I feel like, I mean, gene editing and stuff like that's kind of the future because we can produce more options for consumers. I mean, like like you were talking about, you got the red, the yellow and the purple tomato or um, potatoes. And so consumers see new products and they want to try them. And they're like, oh, hey, I didn't know we could do this. And ag companies are like, yeah, that's what we've been trying to do for years. Well, I think that's right. Um, well, that's one version of it, which is that consumers have a problem. Um, I'll take berries, for example. Like, you know, they, the shelf life's not long enough or they're not consistent. Mm. And everyone knows it, but it's really, really hard for traditional plant breeders to approach that. So that's one version. You solve a problem that everyone's aware of. I think the, the other version of is, you know, it's also equally exciting is when you so- solve a problem that we've all had, but we've never thought about it or we never thought it was possible. And, you know, one, one of the things that plant breeders were able to do was make seedless watermelons or seedless grapes. And, you know, when I was a kid, all our grapes had seeds and, and now none of my kids have had grapes with seeds. And so, um, but I don't know that any survey ever said, please get rid of my seeds. And so <laughs> when we can make fruits and vegetables more convenient, those are non-obvious, but they, they really drive consumption. Um, so, you know, our mission is focused on better fruits and vegetables, um, building a healthy world for better fruits and vegetables. And, and so we're, we're, we're working on the obvious ones, um, the quality issues, as well as the non-obvious ones that would actually help seed more. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, seedless watermelons are great. I mean, not only are they, I mean, they're super convenient. They're great. I mean, you, you don't have any seeds to worry about. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's another option for consumers to have. And they're like, oh, hey, I didn't know I wanted this. And now you don't really know how to turn back from that. Because honestly, I can't remember the last time we've had a seeded watermelon or even like, like you said, like a seeded grape. I mean, now we have things like the cotton candy grapes, which I love those. Have you tried them before? I've had them a couple of times. You know, they're not sold a lot where I live in Idaho, um, mm. but they are, they are, they are super interesting. I agree. 
Yeah, but but those those technically aren't gene edited, right? Those are just kind of crossbred to where they are tasting like cotton candy. I mean, obviously, hopefully, obviously, they're not in a lab mixing, um, you know, cotton candy with grapes. And I'm sure that's on thoughts of several consumers out there, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you know what? You know, the lines get blurry. And mm. so for sure, cotton candy grapes are um, are not gene edited. Um and, and grapes actually have a reasonably intensive breeding program. Now, what more and more breeding programs are starting to use is computers um, and, and, and molecular and genetic markers to, to create what they want. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't using grapes um, at a minimum for disease resistance. So on one hand, you have these, you know, a completely random cross and it produces something. And then somewhere in the middle is... Um, the, you know, the, these molecular markers. And then the things that we're working on are, are even relatively similar. So I'll, I'll take our, our version of a, a cotton, cotton candy grape. We're working on blackberries. And there are over 800 wild um, varieties of, of rubus. Rubus is the family that the blackberries are in. And we only eat two of them, blackberries and raspberries. Oh, wow. Um, but one, you know, one of the main problems if you're a picker and farm, farm labor is really important is those darn thorns. And so thornlessness has evolved multiple times in these different wild berries. Now you could bring those wild berries, you could breed them with blackberries, but it would take decades to bring that thornless trait across. And, and actually breeders have been trying to do that, but we don't have thornlessness in, in the best tasting varieties. And so that's one thing so that the gene editing could do is you bring that specific DNA sequence, it's, it's compatible, it's from blackberries, but you'd bring it into the cultivar that tastes good. And all of a sudden you have a, a blackberry that tastes good, but that's now thornless and easy to pick or willing, or where you can even get workers willing to pick it. And so that's, that's an example where gene editing is doing the same thing that breeding would do. It's just faster. And it's bringing, it's bringing these, these, these traits, these, these traits that are found in nature um, just faster into the market. Oh, wow. That, yeah. And I feel like the consumer would see those be like, hey, we've got new varieties overnight when in reality, it's either been 10 years or a couple of years, a couple of years, thanks to new technology like gene editing. That's super yeah, that's, cool. That's 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 right. And so then back to, you know, where you were earlier with cotton candy grapes. I mean, right now where we're focused on using existing good varieties, flavor is very complicated, but I think the world is going towards how do we how will we, um, you know, some of it will be done through breeding and, and some of it will be done through through some gene editing or even, you know, computers, marker assisted breeding to bring these better, better, um, better attributes to consumers, flavor being one, not one and shelf life being another. Mm. That's a good point. So I saw on your website that you guys are doing leafy greens, berries and cherries. Is that right? That's correct. And then, yes, that's correct. And when that's, that's what we call our consumer crops focused on better products for consumers. And then we do quite a bit of gene editing and, and row crops for Bayer. Gotcha. So how exactly does the whole process work differently for greens as it does to berries? Because I mean, it, it seems like with greens, I mean, you've got most of the plant there that's edible that you can edit. And then with berries, you know, you've got a huge plant and you've got a bunch of little berries that are kind of edible. And so what's the whole research difference between um, trying to develop leafy greens versus berries? Yeah, good question. And there's multiple angles to, to think about this. But, and I think the first thing to do is to start with the problem you're trying to solve. Mm. And, um, and so the, the problems are, are obviously wild, wildly different um, between, you know, cherries, berries and greens. But if we, 
we think about the the the, the greens problem we want to solve is that um, if you know, if you survey the salad market, about a third of its iceberg and about a third of its romaine, and about a third of its what maybe we call the healthy stuff. Mm-hmm. Not that the others are unhealthy, but they really don't. They, you know, there's not a lot there. Um, and the healthy stuff is mostly spinach, but kale and kale and kale and arugula are, are are much healthier. You know, they're they're superfoods. They're they're rich in a lot of vitamins and minerals. The problem is, is that most of us don't want to eat kale and arugula. Um, now you you might have a baby now and then, or you might mix it with something else. But kale is pretty tough, and arugula is pretty bitter. And so the so the the problem we want to solve is how do we have take the the two thirds of the market how do we bring a healthier product to them so that eats like a romaine or possibly an iceberg, but has the nutrition of kale? So that was the, the, the problem we set out to solve. And, and what we found were um, whole varieties of leafy greens that, uh, that, that had the nutrition of kale and structurally they look like um, a romaine or a butterleaf lettuce. And, but the problem was they were very, very pungent. So they, they had like a wasabi taste. Oh gosh! And so you know the product concept in that case is to go remove that pungency or that wasabi taste, so you can you can have something that's very similar to the, your lettuce, but but have the nutrition of kale. Hmm, that's interesting. So I was actually on a podcast yesterday, and we were talking about um, the power of kale and kind of how it's adapted from people were really just either nobody cared about it, and then it was used as a garnish, and then now it's pretty much in almost everything, and so. That's exciting that you guys are trying to make it, I mean, a little bit more accessible and easier to eat for some people. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's my, my goal is eventually have a, we're calling our new leafy greens Veridi, my, uh, to have a Veridi Caesar salad. I want something that's got the crunch and the, the flavor of a, a romaine and a Caesar, but but actually has nutritional kale. Mm, okay. That's so cool. And so you, you mentioned earlier, you guys work with bear, is that right? We do. We do. We have a research contract with them and we do gene editing and uh, corn and soy and wheat and a few other crops for them. So I'm sure they brought a lot of resources to the table for y'all, didn't they? Yeah. You know, that's, that's, um, that's to your earlier question. Um, each crop is different when you try to do gene editing. It's it, it mm. same be true for plant breeding. And, um, and some of these are quite difficult to work with and what, Bayer had done, and, and other companies have done that too, is they've really put a lot of science into the process to make corn and soy and even wheat much easier to work with. And so they transferred those tools to us so that, you know, we can get right on right on with research and using gene editing and not have to reinvent anything that, that, that the industry's already invented. So, so those type of tools are um, that help with do, actually getting the CRISPR into the plant. Um, that's been really advantageous to have uh, Bayer's help get nothing going. I can imagine. Yeah, I hear it's funny because from the ag industry, from experts in the ag industry, and I've known about GMOs and gene editing for years, but for experts in the ag industry, I hear nothing but good things about Bayer. And then from consumers, I hear a lot of questions. And so what do you think um, the typical consumer might have confused about how gene editing and GMOs work? Well, the, the word gene, um, you know, when, as soon as you were using the word gene, if you, if you said gene breeding or, um, or if you ask if there's DNA in food, you get a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I think there, there's probably two sources of confusion. You know, one is that um, maybe a lack of understanding of how much science is already in 
all the, the products we make and eat. I think we, we probably understand that with our iPhones and our computers and a lot of that research had to go in there, but we don't, you know, it's not obvious that, you know, even the flowers we're buying have been, have been undergoing intensive research processes for a long time. So that, that, you know, that gets to, to one of the issues. And I think the other one is maybe the, 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 the large disconnect with farm, with, with what goes on in farms and how they actually work and, um, and, and, and what we buy every day in the supermarket. I, I would say though that, you know, at least our research has found that um, the, you know, the younger generation, Gen Z and millennials um, are, are, are much more technophilic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that you have less confusion and you have more willingness to, um, to, to understand and research. And, and so we, and we've actually seen that we've done some focus groups with, you know, with one of them was with organic buyers and I was shocked at how much information some of the consumers knew um, and, and were supportive as long as you were working on products that, 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 um, that, that mattered. And so that, that's, that's important. Now back to the, the GMO and gene editing, you know, what is a GMO that I don't, most people don't understand, but it's usually, it's understood now to be transgenic or having foreign DNA in a species and, and gene editing is, um, is you know bringing a trait across, but it's something that, that that has happened in nature could happen in nature, and, and bringing that into the plant. These are generally very small DNA changes. Um, you know, one other point just to add on to what's already a long response is that you know every day now we're seeing advancements that CRISPR is helping curing genetic diseases. So I think that that that's also helping with the understanding that you know when we 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 have a something something is wrong in someone's DNA and it creates a disease and through CRISPR, if you can change that back to the normal state, then you can cure a disease. And it's very similar in agriculture. We're trying to cure problems with, with, with small changes in DNA. I like that. I mean, yeah, this technology can change so much. I mean, like you've been saying, you can make healthier food taste better and be more accessible to people. And um, yeah, one thing that I read that was very interesting was that today only like 10% of Americans actually eat their recommended daily intake of fruits, vegetables, um, according to the CDC. And apparently, I mean, it sounds like you guys are trying to fix that with more accessible, better tasting food, which will hopefully in turn help Americans eat better. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Maybe one level deeper. Um, it's not only that 10% of us only eat what we're supposed to. On average, on average, we're only eating half. So you know, we live in a, in a country with as, as much produce and, and it's relatively cheap as anywhere. And yet we're only choosing to eat half. You know, I see that struggle with my kids. Um, you know, when they go to the pantry and want to snack, there's lots and lots of packaged processed foods in there. And, you know, when you go to the fruit bowl, the, there's just, there's bananas and apples. Um, so what, what, it's not just better taste. I think convenience has become a mm. really important factor in our lives. And so um, having things that are the right size, you know, when sometimes we don't want a bigger big, great, big piece of fruit. We just want a couple of bites. Also having, having things that we could eat on the car or eat in work that can travel to work in a container and not get ruined. So we, it's, it's not just better. We think driving towards convenience really, is really important. Now, I, this is where we maybe chance to share the vision. You know, if I could wave my wand and I, I think it will go this way, it might take 20 years, but we take mangoes and peaches and plums and, and, and apples, and we'd get rid of all the cores and all the seeds, and we'd make them all the size of a cherry, which conveniently is the size of a donut hole. 
And you'd have them in all those little containers and that's what be what we'd snack on. So I, I'd, I'd like to see is the snackification or the enabling of the snackification as much as possible. I think, you know, you've seen baby carrots be real successful and you've seen blueberries and it's not an accident. Those are very, very snackable foods. And so as our, our diets move more towards snacking uh, for better or worse, we getting fruits and vegetables there is, 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 is an important um, part of our mission. I like that phrase, the snackification of it. I mean, I think that like, like baby carrots, like you said, I mean, that was a great adaption where we take like ugly carrots and we make them in the short little cute, quick eatable or quick edible um, carrots. And so that'd be really interesting to see how the market goes. Like, um, I mean, instead of like buying a whole cantaloupe, I guess you could get like little bits of bite-sized cantaloupe or something like that, or maybe with a watermelon or, or apples or stuff. So that I feel like if, like with the snackification, if things were easier to eat, more convenient, I mean, consumers would be all over that. Yeah, I, I think that that's right, too. Now, that, that has several uh, several challenges, right? So, you know, a lot of this stuff is hand-picked. And so when you make it bigger, you it requires less labor because you're, pay, you're paid by the pound. And so when mm-hmm. you make it smaller, you've got more labor. So it's not just, um, it's not just, decreasing size of the fruit we've got to enable in many cases machine harvesting um we've also enabled these to grow in the right format it's you know to your point on watermelon it's relatively easy to pick a watermelon off the ground um that's big but if you had a bunch of small ones you know how would you do that and so um but i think that the the tools are all there i mean you know what we think of as natural whether it be an uh an apple or um or a broccoli these things have all bred bred extensively by man. And so I think that the next step is to enable these to fit lifestyles and, and work on that diet problem, which you highlighted. Mm, I like that. That's a good idea. Yeah. And, and I'm learning, I mean, the more and more I do this podcast, I'm learning that people, a lot of consumers want convenience, but also farmers are wanting more convenience to where they can make something quicker, easier, and then just deliver it right to consumers. So, I mean, I feel like convenience might be the wave of the 21st century. Yeah. I, that's what, I mean, I, it is certainly, you know, what to add to one of your statistics that in 1970, 10% of the population was stacking. Most of us were, that were, were around, we're having three meals a day. And today, over 90% of the population is stacking and most people are having two snacks. And I, I think that the statistics around a third of our calorie come from snacks. So I don't, that, if anything, that trends ex, go accelerating, not reversing. So um, getting fruits and vegetables to meet those lifestyle challenges is, um, is important. Oh, no, I believe it. I mean, like snacking, I'm, I can't tell you how many snacks we have here. I mean, we have so many snacks at our house. Just, I mean, they're healthy-ish snacks, I guess you could say. But <laughs> I mean, if, if we had healthy bite-sized like fruits and veggies, I mean, there's no telling how much more healthier we would be. I mean, well, yeah, all those all those snacks you have at your house have a wrapper around them, right? They've been yeah, processed mm-hmm. one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have the same challenge. And, and I mean, that's also so much food waste that we're going on, like all the packaging and stuff. And I, I don't know why I thought about this, but um, when it comes to food waste, I get so mad every time I go to a store and there is like a, a peeled orange in a plastic container. Have you seen those before? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, I'm like, why do you do that? Like an orange is already in a perfectly, it has a container. It's called the peel. I mean, just leave it there instead of like wrapping it or, or putting it in plastic. Like it's not that hard to unwrap an orange. I, you know, I, I mean, this, this gets though towards that convenience point that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you might, I mean, hopefully you want to throw that orange in your backpack, right? And some people might be worried about safety, but yeah, I think there's some communication issues there and you're, and, and, and you're right. And we, um, 
there's def. I mean, I think that, all right, so maybe that's a good place to go. Um, so, you know, when I don't, when you last watched the Super Bowl, did there were all sorts of snacking commercials, oh, whether yeah. it's Cheetos or Doritos or anything else. Did you see any for fruits and vegetables there? I don't think so. No, I, 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 I did not. Matthew I, McConaughey, but that's it. One in the past. Mm. And so all of them, what's what the way it's set up right now, and we, and I don't think it was by design. It just happened. Is that the companies with the big marketing budgets are are selling processed things with fat and sugar, and they have big marketing budgets, and that's what captures the attention. And by the way, those are also big innovation budgets. It allows them to have, you know, this this new flavor of Doritos or this new flavor mm-hmm. of, of of coffee or, or soda for this quarter and then and then do something next quarter in the following and keep innovating and then but they're also advertising teleconsumers and so what when it's just farmed from field to consumer there's no advertising taking place and so one of the things that we're trying to do is to set up some of these unique products but and also enable a as a company to enable a financial structure so we can advertise we can target consumers and so um that's also one of the missing pieces it's not it's not only about the product is, is that, you know, there's no, no companies talking about them. You know, that's right. I mean, usually you just see stuff for like these big time companies, whether it's like processed foods or soda or whatever, you never really see. I mean, you might see a, a certain Gento cheese commercial every now and then, or maybe a happy cows come from California, but that's pretty much it. I mean, you're not seeing anything from a, a watermelon grower or a chocolate farmer or anything like unsuper processed. That's a very good point. And yeah, hopefully you guys can help lead the way to, I don't know, we can see commercials from just normal farmers out there. We, we can see actually like how healthy your food is produced. And I mean, maybe have commercials where like, hey, there's a new variety of blueberries out you can buy in the store. Go get them. That'd be really handy. Yeah, that's right. So you've got you've to create something that, that consumers want that solves the problem for it. And then if it's solving a problem, they'll pay a little more for it. And then you've got to reinvest that money into marketing and, and innovation. And I think that this, the, the mass commoditization makes food cheap and that's worked well for a country. But in this case, what it's doing is, is unfortunately it's putting all the, all the advertising dollars into processed foods. And so that, that's the other part. It's not just the innovation piece. It's making consumers aware that you've got a solution for them. So why do you think um, commercials like that and advertising maybe haven't been done? I mean, maybe because there's so many farmers out there growing one crop or, I mean, and it's hard to kind of put it all under one roof. What do you think? Well, I think that, so one, you know, produce is, you know, when you, if you walk into produce section, there's 40, 50, 60 different items and each one's a different in, industry. Usually there's different farmers growing each different item. You know, you're, potato farmers are usually not your onion farmers and your onion farmers are certainly not your grapefruit farmers. So, so sometimes you see organizations by industry groups, but I think the, the other piece is that, you know, supermarkets are trying to get as cheap as possible. And so then they, they turn around and, um, and they're sourcing from farmers and the farmers are overproducing, but it's a, it's a commodity structure as opposed to a consumer product goods structure. Mm. So, it, um, and, um, and so you need, you need, an, and, and then when none of the products are unique, then it's, it's only a focus on cost. And so, you know, for, for instance, I mean, you can think, we can think of other things where there isn't a lot of advertising too, it's because they're all commodities. Um, so the, you ha- we have to create products that aren't commodities. And then, and then you ha- then you get a little pricing power when you do that. Um, assuming you've got a good product 
And then that's what enables the, the, the marketing. Otherwise, it has to be by industry group. And for the most part, that hasn't worked out except maybe in the milk industry. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I, always, I, I heard a few years ago um, that apparently the this well, well first off i didn't know this the same marketing company that did got milk also did the just do it thing for nike did you know that i didn't that doesn't surprise me it was very, both of those are very good so but, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know that and apparently years ago i think like 10 years ago or something all of the big american beer brands were going to get with that marketing firm um to kind of combat i guess craft brewery really and how popular that's gotten but then i think bud light or Budweiser jumped out of it. And so they didn't do it. And so I was like, you know what? I, I bet that would have been like the biggest um, campaign out there. That would have been really interesting to see, but it didn't happen. So, oh well, well, I, but I think, I mean, I think you're highlighting the problem, right? So let's say, let's say you wanted to advertise honey crisp apples, just for example, they're already great. We like them. Well, you know, it's probably produced by 1500 or 2000 farmers. And are mm-hmm. they all going to put in money for an advertising campaign or would they rather invest that money in their farm? And, and, and so collectively when they're all producing the same thing, it ends up being like what you just talked about is, ah, you know, good idea. Probably, probably, a, probably better investing that money somewhere else. And so that, that as a result, we, as a society don't have it. There's, there's no money being focused on awareness, whether these health problems or whether it's better products. Yeah, that's true. Do you think that there might be, this might be the, an opportunity that, that maybe the processors or distri- um, distribution companies can do, or maybe we need some another party to kind of swoop in there and try to figure out how to help market and advertise for these just the normal everyday um, uh, farming crops. Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to say what the solution is for for the entire industry for everything. I, I can tell you what we're trying to do. Um, we we another important piece about this is innovation. So, and, and that's what, you know, we're using technology, gene editing to drive innovation. So one of our products is a seedless blackberry. We, we know that 85% of consumers don't like the seed. So, so, and we think that it's a lot easier for all of us to get excited when something new comes out and especially something that's better. And so what we're going to do is um, we're going to put up a, a reasonable percentage of sales back into marketing as we launch that product. And, and we think, and then we want to launch the next product, the next product, and, we hope the innovation will get folks excited, but but that also what the revenues from that will also support the marketing model. So I th- um, I actually, you know, I'm not sure if we try to revitalize everything that's done in the past or if we just try to innovate for the future and then make sure we do a good job communicating about that. And that, that's at least the approach that Pairwise has taken. Mm, I like that. So so what's the future looking like? I mean, obviously you guys want to grow and kind of make more produce like leafy greens, berries and all that stuff. So what's your future goals for like the next 10 years or so? Yeah, I mean, well, neither of those products are on the market and we're in field trials now. So right in the next two years, two, two and a half years is about launching those products, launching the berries, launching the, the leafy greens. Um, and then, you know, and, and then after we have a seedless blackberry, we'd like to have a seedless raspberry. And then we've got a new kind of berry, a black raspberry. Um, you know, I, I don't know if, you, if you're from the Pacific Northwest, you'll have seen them. They, they grow wild, but um, there's, they're really, really high antioxidants and they have a great berry flavor. But the, the problem is in the wild, they only have a day or day and a half of shelf life. Oh, and wow. So through, through a combination of breeding and gene editing, we, we think we can bring these to the market. Um, they're also really thorny. Um, so they're not, they're not fun to pick. So um, anyway, so 
I guess that the next 10 years is hopefully a series of innovation after innovation after innovation. Those are just the first three or four, but we want to, in each of these categories where we can do something new and do something better for consumers, we'd like to bring new products forward. And, and we don't think we'll be the only company. What, what we'd like to do is win in berries and win in greens and eventually create a pitless cherry. But we, 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 we hopefully will create an environment where consumers are, consumers are excited about innovation and we can see a whole bunch more investment going into better fruits and vegetables and really work on this diet problem. It's, it's, it's not just a U.S. problem, but it's a global problem in developed countries. Mm. That's awesome. I, I'm super excited to see what you guys do because I'm always fascinated to learn more about, I mean, gene editing and all the technology in there because I feel like the typical consumer is not really aware of you guys and what your technology can do and what it can bring to the table. I, I think I think that's right. Um, but it's, it's, you know, what people become aware once the products are on the market. And, you mm-hmm. know, we're, we're still, we're getting close. We, we expect to launch the leafy greens late next year, but it takes time to build. Um, but I think as, as, you know, as companies create products and, and people see them, then, then it becomes real. And so that, that's an important part of the conversation. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that was the first place we started at, most of these are a five-year product development timeline. So it, you know, it's not software. You don't program it and you have it tomorrow. It takes a little bit. Yeah, these have to be grown in fields, produced by farmers, and they have to have good quality. Yeah, that's a key thing. I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day, so it takes you a long time to build up the tools, the knowledge, the know-how, and then really how to actually do it and then how to get word out there. So it's a whole huge process. But it sounds like you guys are on the right path. And so I can't wait to see what you guys do. And especially when your product comes to market, we will we'll definitely have to have you all back on whenever um, the product comes to market and kind of get some reviews and stuff. Yeah, that sounds great. And, um, and I, you know, when that it, it's not too long from now and we'll, we'll, we'll have some industry events coming up too. So I look forward to those conversations, Trevor. It's been, it's been fun chatting with you today. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to learn more about Pairwise, where can they go to kind of learn more about your story and what you guys are doing? Well, podcasts like this are, are a great source. I mean, we, that's, that's where I get a lot of my information. We've got a website. Um, honestly, we're not, we're not really pushing the marketing stuff too hard until we, till we're about to launch products. And, one of them will get launched late. Uh, you know, we'll start really talking about it late this fall for, for next fall. So um, don't be surprised if there's not a, a, a ton of information because we want it to be product focused. But, um, but I, think, I think that like the things you're doing, the podcast and the website is a good, a good place to start. Hey, absolutely. Yeah, we'll be looking for more podcasts from you guys that you're on. So, and yeah, and your website is super cool. I was checking it out and getting all the good info about your your leafy greens and vegetables and stuff like that. Um, you, you know, one one other thing to add, if you follow us on LinkedIn, and that's one of the ones mm, we're doing, but I think mm-hmm. we're also Twitter. That's where you get the recent announcement. So, um, you know, uh, social for some of us, social media has become more and more important. And so uh, that that's also a place you can look, you could sign up and get the latest updates. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I, I just found y'all on, on Twitter. I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. So I am hitting you guys with a follow right now. So perfect. Perfect. Well, that goes for both of us too. I, I, it's actually Twitter's is a non-obvious media choice for any, anyone that's agriculture, but not many of us do a real good job on that, but we're trying. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I get on Twitter like once a week now I'm trying to use it a little bit more and more. So we'll see how that goes. I might follow you guys for tips and tricks on how to do Twitter. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, Haven, thanks so much, man. Best of luck. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Sounds good. Take care.
Again, this episode was with Dr. Baker from Pairwise. If you want to see our blog post on it, go to thefarmtraveler.com and you can go up to our podcast episode section at the top and you'll also find a bunch of articles and a bunch of other podcast episodes on our website. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. Basically, just look up Farm Traveler and you will find us on your favorite social media platform. So thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.